Hey, everybody. Stop me if you've heard this one. Somebody asks you about how your day went at work, and you can, with great precision and energy, talk about what you hate about it, about that person that did that thing one more time, about the frustrations, just with great detail and go on and on and on. If that person stops and says something to the nature of, well, what, good, what happened that was good? You're like, it, it was a good day. That's pretty much it. It was fine. I do that all the time. I can give you great precision and energy and detail on the things that I do not like. But when it comes to the things that I'm, let's just say, thankful for, it's like, yeah, that's good. That's good, too. Why is that? Now, there's maybe a lot of reasons for that, and we're in Revelation. But as I studied our text today, because we're going to be in Revelation chapter 7, uh, we're going to be picking up and finishing the rest of that. Where are we going to start? Verse 15, all the way through chapter 8, verse 1. I think the reason, at least for me, that's the way I talk, this language of captivity, this this, this inability to even mimic what we see in Revelation when it comes to praise is I, the older I get, honestly, the less and less I feel at home in this world. And I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. I, I do love life. I really do. And I know there's great wisdom in actually um, praising God for what's good with great detail and precision. And I do love this life. And yet, this is true. I feel less and less at home in this world. Maybe you feel that too. Today our text steps on that, speaks to that. And what does home feel like? Well, you know what home feels like. You can rest there. Right? You can relax and you can rest. You don't have to be anything. You're just there. And, and you kind of long for home. So there's this natural draw where you're drawn there. You want to be there. And the essence of, of being at home is you're just loved. You know that. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to, to earn your place at the table. You are just there. And the more I experience life, the less and less I feel like that. So God has something for us in this today. And as we jump into chapter, or the rest of chapter 7 and finish up in verse um, 1 of chapter 8, know this. There's a temptation in this line of thinking to see Revelation and to put a lot of detail on, hey, what is the number of 144,000 mean? What are these scorpion things? That's interesting. This all matters. There's a lot of detail, and specifically, a lot of that detail has to do with God's judgment. And it's necessary, and it's good, and we believe that. But friend, if you do not see a vivid picture of what God's love looks like, if you can't understand that in great detail, and you can't explain that to yourself and others in great detail, then you're going to miss, for the most part, everything that Revelation has for you. you. You need to understand what it means that you are loved by God. And not just in a way that's information or doctrine. You need to understand the experience of what it means to be loved by God. So how real is that to you? Do you feel at home there? Do you feel like you have a really clear sense for you? Not just what it could mean, 
but for you, what it means for you to be loved by God. Do you know that in detail? Does that, does that expand in your imagination what it means to be a child of God? Does that come out of your language, or like me, do you just speak the language of captivity? All right, this is a good verse. This is good, it's beautiful, and it's powerful. And I want you to think about what it means to be loved by God in detail, because this is where the text goes. So I'm going to pick it up. We're going to be in verse 15 of chapter 7, and we're going to take it all the way through chapter 8, verse 1. And this is basically those that God has sealed. He's put his name on them. He's protected them. They're able to stand through great tribulation, through intense pressure. He's bringing them home. He's brought them home. So now what? Here we go. Therefore, they, that's the great multitude, that's God's people, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Heavenly Father, we come before you. You want us, I'm convinced after reading this text, you want us to have such a precise understanding of what it means to be loved by you in real time, that it changes how we think, how we see life, how we talk, how we experience everything, even now, even now. And so our prayer together is that you would open up your beautiful word that we might behold its treasure, that you might in your mercy do that for us today. And so we lift this up in the name of Jesus. Amen. See, it's in there. God writes this into his text, and we just jump over it and go, ah, yeah, yeah, that's something that's, that's going to happen in the future. That is true, but it's something that we must be experiencing right now. And like I mentioned, we've been understanding what it means for, um, because the, chapter 6 ends with this hanging question, who can stand God's judgment? Chapter 7 really answers that and says the people of God, in their fullness, can stand through everything that the world throws at them, everything, because God has sealed them. He sealed them to, to withstand intense pressure of life, and he is bringing them home. So that's almost like the negative view of what it means to endure that. Then as we cross into to verse 15, we see this incredible positive view of what it looks like for God's people to stand in his love, to stand in the fullness of his love. And there's three things. We're just going to break it up into three things. Why do we do that? Because that's about all we can remember. That's what we can handle, okay? So the first thing that we see in this text is that God's people are standing in his presence. What does that mean? The second thing that we see is that they're standing in his provision, He's continuing to give to them. And lastly, they're standing in his healing. 
in a way that is, is we just don't think about. So we'll walk through that together, his presence, his provision, and his healing. So what does it mean for us today, or even in the future sense, to stand in God's presence? Well, what we see here in this text is costly faith. The people of God have, have paid a great price to hold on to the things of Jesus, to his word, to trusting in him. And many of them, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, the cost for them to hold on to the words of Christ was to let go of their lives. They, they died, right? Died in faith, but nonetheless, they experienced costly faith. So costly faith is something that is, we should, we're all called to, but what does that look like? How does costly faith actually prepare you for God's presence? We want to see that because it's in the text. Well, first is this. Wow, I keep doing that. It might cost me my foot. Okay, so costly faith prepares you in this way. It gives you purity. You saw this. You saw this last week. Well, I'm not just going to read it right here. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then it goes on to our text. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. So costly faith prepares you to be in the presence of God and you're holding on to the words of Christ because it gives you purity. This idea that you're given garments or given robes that you yourself, which is the act of faith, you're dipping them in the blood of Christ and they're making them white. What in the world is that getting at? Well, we have to understand the imagery of the Old Testament to understand what the Apostle John is doing here, and the same stands. Uh, right in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 30, I'll just pop there really quick. We get this idea as Moses is preparing Aaron to be the high priest. It says, Then he took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments. So there's idea, if we're going to be in God's presence, if we're going to serve him, if we're going to be in the place in this life and the next, the age to come, where our purpose and our desires wrap around what it means to be in God's presence and worship him and serve him eternally, we need to be without sin. We need to be the, the, the stain of sin needs to be washed away. So that comes through faith. So costly faith, one of the ways it prepares us is it, it, it cleans us. Not our work, right? Faith is you're holding out your hands and you're receiving and resting in what Jesus has done for you. And honestly, that's one of the hardest things that we do because it's not our work. It depends on him. So that costly faith is resting in that. It gives us purity. And secondly, it's a relational track record. Costly faith prepares you to be in the presence of God because you learn to know him. You understand who he is. Prayer does that. Walking through difficult life does that. Costly faith will put you on God's doorstep over and over and over. And the only way you're going to grow in intimacy with God is not just hearing about him, but you yourself actually going to him. Even as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 26, hey, come to me. Are you, are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you overwhelmed? Come to me. I will give you rest. Right? Take on my yoke. Learn from me. So there's this call to come. So this relational track record is something that you want to build in this life so that you continue to find delight and joy in God's presence. Think of it this way. Um, we don't, in America, I'm just going to say that, for the most part, we don't look highly on arranged marriages, do we? 
Now, it happens still because we have a lot of cultures uh, in our country, and I know that from being over in India several times, it still happens. It's very normal. Not for everyone, but for some. And without going into the details of the benefits or the awful things about that, don't see your faith as an arranged marriage in the worst way. Don't see your faith as, well, yeah, I heard the gospel and I believe it, and I don't really know who Jesus is, but someday maybe I'll, you know, I'll go to heaven and then we'll, I'll get acquainted. No, don't live your life now like your faith is really just an arranged marriage. And you're just trying to be on the right side of, of what the Bible says, and I'll believe, but I really don't know God. He wants you right now. So costly faith is about putting you in God's presence. It's about you learning to know him. This prepares you for him. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, God's presence, and serve him day and night in his temple. Hebrews 9.14, I'm just going to read it to you because it, it helps us understand so much of the Old Testament. This idea of the blood of Christ cleansing us. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, you having an intimate relationship, love, trust with God through faith in Christ, where you truly will put yourself in his presence, in his word, through prayer, through trusting in him. Having that is not a religious exercise, it's what you're made for. And the blood of Christ actually cleanses you, cleanses our conscience, and puts you in the right mindset in where you can actually walk with God personally. And then serving him becomes less of an activity and more of just your life. You are made to worship him. And, and listen to how Revelation explains this. So serve him day and night in his temple. Okay, we get the idea of temple. That's the presence and power of God. It's where God meets with his people, but then it goes on. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So he who sits on the throne, Christ, will shelter him with his presence. That idea of sheltering, it just means tabernacle. So the writer of Revelation, John, it wants to start transitioning your idea of what it means to be in the presence of God from a place or a temple to a person that is Jesus. That's, that's, he's the tabernacle. As we continue to go on in Revelation, that becomes more and more vivid. So, God has sealed you that you might stand in his presence. That you, not in, not in terror, but in delight and in joy. Secondly, he sealed his servants that you might stand in his provision. So it's one thing to be in the presence of God as a child of God. It's another thing to understand the experience of being provided for in every way. So we might say it this way. What's it like to live in the fullness of God's presence? If God has, is, has sealed us or protected us, gets us home, even now to stand in his presence, well, what does that feel like? It feels like the experience of God providing for you is what it feels like. That's what it should feel like very much. So let's look at the text and see how that is fleshed out. Well, verse 16 says, they shall hunger no more and neither be or neither thirst any more. Nor the sun shall strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. 
So what does it feel like to be in the presence of God? It feels like his provision for you. One is this. This hope doesn't have an end or an enemy. There's never going to be a day that you wake up and God has peaced out on you and said, I'm tired of you. I've got a hope that I can offer, but you're not too serious about it, so I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm out. This hope, this provision has no enemy that can overcome it. There's no end. Secondly, no unmet needs ever. You know what sin causes? Separation from God. You know what that causes? Your needs just being unmet. That's the whole, that's curse. That's the whole story of the Bible. So the provision of God is that every need that you have, in a significant way now, right, and in the age to come eternally, in every way you could even possibly imagine, there will be no unmet need. This is standing in his provision. Jesus alludes to it in John 6, 35. He's, he's done some miracles and people are chasing him around going, hey, can you do the bread thing again? We like that. And it's great. God does give us things. But that we can misunderstand the relationship and say that and think that my relationship with God is about getting his stuff. But he's good. He gives us stuff. But Jesus is like, I know why you're following me. You want me to give you more bread. However, Trust me, I'm the bread of life. Believe in me. I will give you living water. It will quench a thirst deep in your soul that you can find no other way to quench. So it's not just unmet needs, it's he is your greatest need. That is what your soul longs for. So it's a hope without enemy or end. This is what it means to be provided for in Christ. No unmet needs, even significantly now. And lastly, you're just never lost or wandering. Listen to this. This is good. Oh, I dropped something. I can't get it together today. And the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That's weird. The lamb is going to be the shepherd. It's a reversal, isn't it? Well, why is that interesting? Well, because the lamb who was slain, who's now the king, knows what it's like to be a sheep. That's who you are. He took on flesh. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear, never lost or wandering. There's a saying that comes out of the Lord of the Rings. I think it's the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's on a lot of coffee cups and things. It says, not all who wander are lost. Have you heard that? That's true. There's meaning to that. But let me spin that on you. I will tell you this. All that are lost never stop wandering. You will never find what you're looking for unless you find it in Christ. Even in Genesis 4, it talks about life being like you're a fugitive, like you're a wanderer. But the lamb, that is Christ, is in the center of the throne, the center of your life. He's the shepherd. He is the one who guides you to the deepest, to fulfill in him the deepest longings 
that you have. Because here's what Jesus knows. Here's what God knows. Your longings are leading you right now. You want to know where you're going in your life? Wherever your longings are taking you. This is the beauty of the shepherd. He, he moves us from death to life, so our greatest desire is him. And that's how he leads us. And he leads us to eternal life in him. And lastly, God seals you, not just that you can stand in his presence, stand in his provision, but also stand in his healing. Did you catch this? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, you remember a couple chapters ago when John, right here in chapter 5, verse 4, when the scroll was about to be opened, or he knows that it should be opened, he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. In other words, no one can fix the disaster that we live in. We might have a blueprint for it, but nobody, first of all, it's not good, and second of all, nobody's going to be able to do this. And so he weeps, but the lamb who was slain, who's now the ascended king, takes the scroll, and he starts to open it. So who can fix this? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And not just in general, not just in general. God has intimate knowledge of where you're broken and what you need, and he will meet you right now, today. And one of the reasons I'm so, uh, I don't feel home here anymore because I know there's gonna be some wounds that don't get healed this side of eternity. And we're gonna live with them. And God's gonna give us everything that we need. He's gonna be with us. He's never gonna leave us. But even as he returns, even as the new age begins, you will be healed in ways very precisely that only God knows about you. And he will do it personally. That is the healing that he brings. He knows your deepest wounds. And as we get to the end of this little poem here and we move into chapter eight, we see the end of history is, the beginning, is a new beginning, isn't it? And remember, we talked about Revelation being seven different views of the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. This is the end of the second section that we're reading. Have you ever heard that before? God will wipe away every tear from your eye? Yeah, I think it's in Revelation 21. You're like, well, is he going to do it again? No, he's not. This is the end of history. This is Jesus opening the seventh seal, opening the scroll. History is finished up. It's done. And what does everybody do? They're silent. So maybe the, f the first word that God calls us to or that we just respond with as we see God fully judge evil and bring his people home and renew all of the cosmos is just awe. You're just silent. You just respond in awe. It reminds me of Jesus in, in chapter, Luke chapter 23 as he's on the cross and he gives up his spirit and the sun goes dark. And the veil is torn. It's almost like creation stepped back and was silent at his death. Friend, faith for you is learning over and over and over how to receive his work, right? The darkness of the sun basically not giving its light is judgment. He's taken that for you. 
and the veil being torn is that his resurrection gives you full access to God the Father right now so that you can have presence with God right now so that God can meet your needs right now. Not every need that you want, but every need that you need. Just trust him in that and that he will guide you and he will give you healing right now. So what is the big idea of this text? What does God want you to know from this text right here? Friends, if you are in Christ, if you're trusting in him, he has sealed you that you might be at home in his love, not in some future day right now, not just in heaven right now. God has sealed his sins. He's sealed his servants that you today will learn to be at home in his love, in his presence, in his provision right now, and to receive healing from him right now. So how real is that to you? How real is the experience of God's love for you personally right here? Are you at home in it? Do you feel less and less at home in this world? I get that. But without feeling more and more at home in God's love, you're lost. Do you feel at home? Let's feel at home in God's love. This is what he has for us. And maybe you're like, I've never done that. Just do it. Trust him. Receive him. Confess your sin to him. He's ready to forgive you right now. He's ready to make his home with you right now. Dear Lord, we thank you and we praise you. This is a hard text, Jesus, because it puts us in a place where we cannot let the gospel or your love be an abstract idea or doctrine. You, are, you invade us, Lord. You are God with us. You tabernacle with us. You take up residence in our life that we feel and know your presence and your provision and your healing in a way that gets increasingly greater, Lord, as we trust you all the way up to and including the heavens, your return. And so I pray for every one of us, Lord, that that would become more real today, Lord, that, you, that by your spirit, you would make us at home in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.